We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And if this is your first time with us here at Emmaus, we just want you to know that you are welcome here. We're so glad that you've come to worship with us on this Lord's Day. And we pray that your first experience with Emmaus is a blessing, that it's a rich encouragement for you, and that it draws you closer to Jesus Christ as the only one who can satisfy your longing soul. If you would, turn with me to the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 21 this morning. As you're turning there, I do have a brief announcement to make. Uh, ladies of Emmaus, this is, this is for you. Um, on October 8th, which is this upcoming Saturday, there is an Emmaus women's event. It's gonna be at 7 p.m. at the home of Patrick and Hannah Schreiner, and it'll be in their backyard. So bring a lawn chair or a blanket to sit on. If you need more information about this event, you can contact women at EmmausKC.com. Women at EmmausKC.com. That's where you can go for more information. All right, end of announcement, beginning of sermon. Speaking of sermons, I once heard... A pastor say that in general, there are two kinds of sermons, two kinds of sermons. The first kind of sermon is the come and live sermon, and the second kind of sermon is the go and die sermon. As we begin this morning, I feel like I should warn you that the sermon you're going to hear is the second kind of sermon. This will be a go and die sermon. Because this morning we're going to be talking about the painful side of mission. The painful side of mission. Being on mission with Christ certainly has its moments of, of glory and grandeur. We've all had that mountaintop spiritual experience, have we not? Those moments when we feel like we're on top of the world, can be incredibly exhilarating. And when those moments come, we're thankful for them because they remind us of God's goodness and his faithfulness toward us. But being on mission with Christ can also be painful. It's not without its hardship and suffering and moments that, quite frankly, feel like rock bottom. Of course, this doesn't diminish God's goodness or his faithfulness in any way. But let's be honest here. At times, his mission is no bed of roses. Or maybe it is a bed of roses, provided that we remember that roses have thorns. Today, we'll see this painful side of mission playing out in the life of the Apostle Paul. If you remember, Paul has basically been the main human actor in the book of Acts since chapter 13. The book has closely been following his missionary journeys all over the Mediterranean world. And as we've walked with Paul, we've come to see that he is no stranger to hardship. 
This is actually built into the pattern of Paul's ministry. We see Paul bringing the gospel to new peoples and new places, and the pattern goes that that some receive the gospel when they hear it from Paul, and others resist the gospel when they hear it from Paul, sometimes quite violently. But here in chapter 21, we see a notable absence of that pattern. No one is converted in chapter 21. There are no signs and wonders in chapter 21. At no point in this chapter is a city transformed by the gospel. It just doesn't happen. Instead, what we see is an emphasis on the suffering that awaits Paul in Jerusalem, where he is called to go. And today, as we consider this emphasis, I want you to see something. I want you to see that the mission of Christ is never without the pain of his cross. The mission of Christ is never without the pain of his cross. So with that, you you can see why I said at the very beginning that this is a go and die sermon. I seriously doubt this is going to be the most uplifting message you've ever heard. I realize that. But what I pray this message does is I pray that it reminds you that the Messiah who we have gathered to worship today is a crucified Messiah who calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. So let's look at Acts chapter 21. We'll start in verse 1. Read with me. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside of the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. We greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. 
For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh, Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So the first thing I want to point out to you this morning, based on this text that we just read, is that there are times when your heart will be broken by gospel goodbyes. There are times when your heart will be broken by gospel goodbyes. As regenerate Christians, we believe that our God is a sending God. And because he is a sending God, saying goodbye to dear brothers and sisters in Christ will be an unavoidable part of his mission. And at times it will also be a painful part of his mission. We see this in our text. In this text, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. That's where God is, is calling him to go. And along the way, along Paul's journey, there's quite a lot of geography to keep track of. Lots of proper names in this text. Lots of moving around. So as we look at these verses, I, I want to keep things as simple as I can. And I want to do this by pointing out to you that there are two gospel goodbyes described to us in this text. Two gospel goodbyes. If you remember last week, we looked at a gospel goodbye between Paul and the Ephesian elders in Miletus. And this week we get to see two more of these gospel goodbyes. The first gospel goodbye is mentioned in verses 3 through 6, where Paul stops in the city of Tyre there in Syria. In some ways, this, this gospel goodbye looks similar to what we saw in chapter 20. Once again, we see Paul and members of the church kneeling together. They're praying together before they part ways. I would imagine that this, like what we saw in chapter 20, was a moving scene. It's quite possible that there were tears involved here. Because look at verse 4. In verse 4, we see that these believers, they really wanted Paul to change his plans. It says that, through the Spirit, the church, the, the believers there entire, they were trying to convince Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Now, on the surface of things, I'm guessing that this might sound a little confusing because it sounds like the Holy Spirit is forbidding Paul to go to Jerusalem because notice that in verse 4, they are telling him, through the Spirit, not to go. So it, it, does this mean that if, if Paul goes on to Jerusalem, does this mean we're supposed to draw the conclusion that he is being disobedient to the Spirit of God? It, is that what this text is telling us? Well, I don't think it's that simple. Because if you look back at chapter 20, the previous chapter in verse 14, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem... And I am constrained by the Holy Spirit. So 
Here we have these believers in Tyre, and and, and in the spirit, they are telling Paul that he should not go to Jerusalem, but at the same time, Paul has already said that the spirit is compelling him to do this very thing. So which is it? Is the spirit telling Paul to go or not? I think what John Stott says in his commentary is helpful. It may help us to sort this out. Stott says that when we look at verse 4, we should draw a distinction between a prediction and a prohibition. We should draw a distinction between a, a, a prediction and a prohibition. In other words, we need to distinguish between the Spirit saying that something will happen versus the Spirit saying that something should not happen. If we make this distinction, if we look at it the way that that Stott is explaining it, then we see that the church is not saying that Paul is being disobedient. Instead, the Spirit was empowering the church to make a prediction. They were being empowered to make the prediction that suffering is on the horizon for Paul. And these believers, as as this prediction begins to crystallize, they become concerned for their brother in Christ, because when you really love someone, it's hard to just stand by and watch as you, as you watch them go into a situation where they're going to suffer, where they're going to experience a lot of pain. But Paul knows that this is exactly what he is being called to do. This is what he must do. Pastor Patrick, in his commentary on Acts, says that the Spirit warns the disciples entire that Paul will face affliction But they do not understand that the Spirit also pushes Paul toward this persecution and not away from it. They both understand and misunderstand. Really, this this prediction, even if it seems a little confusing, it actually appears in the text for an important purpose. It appears in the text to underscore something that is central to the text, which is that Paul is being presented as a suffering servant of the gospel who is walking in the footsteps of the suffering servant. He's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Remember, it was Jesus who went to Jerusalem in order to suffer. Listen to Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Paul's understanding is that he he is following the same path that Jesus walked. He says this elsewhere, not only in Acts 21, he says it elsewhere in the New Testament. For instance, to the Philippians, he says in Philippians chapter 3, I share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul tells them that that my calling as an apostle is to become like him in his death. Or listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Friends, this is why Paul is compelled to go to Jerusalem, even as those around him are pleading with him not to go. Let's look at the second gospel goodbye. The second gospel goodbye appears in verse 8. 
We see Paul visiting a, a group of believers gathered in the house of Philip the evangelist. If you remember, we met Philip earlier in the book of Acts. Chapter 8 outlines Philip's missionary endeavors. And now Philip is resurfacing just before a pivotal moment in the life and ministry of Paul. The text tells us that Philip has four daughters who prophesied, but Luke doesn't really focus on that. What Luke does focus on is a prophecy given by a man from Judea named Agabus. And Agabus gives what seems to me like the most awkward sermon illustration ever. He goes up to Paul and he takes Paul's belt, which sounds to me like a significant breach of normal social conduct. All right, being a normal person, 101, don't take other people's articles of clothing, right? But I suppose we can forgive Agabus for his social awkwardness because he actually makes a prediction that comes true. Agabus ties Paul's belt around his own hands and his feet, and he says, this is what's coming for the man who owns this belt. He will be bound with chains in Jerusalem. Those in Jerusalem will do this to him. And verse 12 tells us that when the church there at Philip's house heard this prediction, they begged Paul not to go. They pleaded with him with tears streaming down their faces. Don't do this, Paul. If you would just change your plans, if you would just adjust your itinerary, this suffering could be avoided. And again, this isn't someone accusing Paul of being disobedient. No one is calling Paul's faithfulness into question. Instead, what this is, is love and concern for a brother. This is a good and godly desire for Paul's well-being. But here's the thing. Even when there are good and godly desires on all sides, believers still will not always see eye to eye. Faithful Christians will differ on what should be done in specific situations. That's what's happening here. Look at Paul's response in, in, in verse 13. Paul asks them, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to do this, even if it means I'm in prison, even if it means I'm martyred for my faith. I must do this for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul is so resolute in this that he couldn't even be persuaded to entertain an alternative. So the church is really left with no other option but to commend their brother to the Lord. They say of Paul, with broken hearts, they say of him, let the will of the Lord be done. It sounds a lot like Jesus in Gethsemane, does it not? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Let it be so, but if not, not my will, but yours be done. That's what the church is saying here. Friends, let's just state the obvious. Let me observe that gospel goodbyes are really hard. Saying goodbye to your, to your brother and sister in Christ, letting them go, is just plain difficult. As a church, we, 
We know this from experience. One of the hardest things about Emmaus is how often people go. Of course, last week, Pastor Josh reminded us of the bigger picture of why we do gospel goodbyes. He demonstrated that it's a joy to send pastors and missionaries all over the world. We even got to end our service last week with a gospel goodbye. So let's not lose sight of that. Let's, Let's not lose sight of the fact that it is a great privilege of Emmaus to send people out for the sake of mission. But at the same time, Let's also acknowledge that there's a painful side to this. Can we just kind of stop and grieve that for a moment? The privilege of sending is never without the pain of losing. For those of us who stay behind, we we feel the absence of those who are gone. In some cases, we feel it long after they've left us. And in those cases, what Paul says in verse 13 resonates with us. You're breaking my heart. Your absence, it's breaking my heart. For some of you, there are people who used to be members at Emmaus that you dearly miss. Your heart is aching for their friendship. You wish more than anything you could see them at community group this week. You you long to be able to worship alongside them on the Lord's day, to to come to the Lord's table with them. You're struggling with the, the sadness of not being able to just hang out with them this week, grab coffee or have them over at your house. Some of you are missing men who used to be your pastors. Emmaus not only sends members Recently, Emmaus has has sent pastors, sent elders, elders who have prayed with you, elders who have preached to you, elders who have pastored you in some of the darkest moments of your life. But now, because of their faithfulness to the mission of God, you no longer call them your pastor. What you're experiencing When we say goodbye to church members and pastors, that's no small loss. And Acts 21 is identifying that for us. It's reminding us that this is a very real part of the painful side of mission. That there are times when our hearts are broken because of gospel goodbyes. Let's continue in our text. Verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And When they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of, of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. 
But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So here in these verses, we see Paul being misunderstood. Paul is being misunderstood. He arrives there in Jerusalem. We see the brothers welcoming him gladly. Paul is eager to tell them about all that has happened in his missionary work. The reunion there in Jerusalem is joyful and affectionate and encouraging. So far, so good. But then verse 20 happens. While everyone is glorifying God because of what they've heard from Paul, James and the elders speak up and they say, Paul, we've got a bit of a PR problem here. It turns out that there were many Jewish believers who were zealous for the law, and these Jewish believers are under the impression that Paul has been speaking out against Moses and against the laws and customs of Israel. Of course, it's true that Paul has been addressing these things. He has been teaching on these things. He's been saying that Moses and these, law, these laws and these customs, they do not make a person righteous before God. Only Christ makes us righteous in the presence of a holy God. But in no way has Paul been telling Jewish Christians to violate their conscience. He's not been out there trying to get people to abandon Judaism. To say that about Paul's mission and his teaching would be to misunderstand Paul's mission and his teaching. But it was too late to explain that. This misunderstanding had turned into something of a rumor which had spread throughout Jerusalem. And so there were, there were a lot of people there who didn't take kindly to Paul. Paul would not find a warm welcome among such people. And so James and the elders, they say, okay, here's how we're going to get out in front of this. Verses 23 and 24. They say, we have these four guys who are under a vow. They're under a Nazarite vow. And these four men did not have the financial means to pay for what was required in that vow. So J James advises Paul to pay their way. Paul's supposed to pay out of pocket for these men to complete their vow. And this would demonstrate that Paul has indeed not turned his back on Judaism. He has not turned his back on the laws and customs of Israel. And Paul agrees to do this. He submits to what James and the elders are advising him to do. Because listen, Paul wants to live at peace with those in Jerusalem. He doesn't want conflict with them. He wants peace with them. Look at what happens next. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. 
Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowds. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So despite Paul's best attempts to dispel the rumors about him, he is still met with persecution. And this illustrates the second thing I want you to see today from this text. I want you to see that there are times when your faithfulness to God's mission will be met with misunderstanding and even persecution. There are times when your faithfulness to God's mission will be met with misunderstanding and even persecution. Verse 27, an angry mob is stirred up by a group of Jewish leaders from Asia. These leaders make public accusations against Paul. They say that Paul has brought a Gentile, an uncircumcised man into the temple and defiled the temple. And this is enough to cause an uproar. It leads to Paul being attacked. We're told in verse 30 that this, this angry mob ambushes Paul. They violently seize him, verse 31, in order to kill him. This angry mob has every intention of taking Paul's life. As the violent blows are raining down upon his bruised and bleeding body, it had to have been going through Paul's mind, okay, this is it. This is it. This is the moment that I become like my Lord in death. But before Paul can even finish having that thought, the whole thing is interrupted. Paul's martyrdom is postponed for a later time because look at, look at verse 31. Word reached the, co, uh, the, the, the tribune of the Roman cohort that there was an uproar that had broken out in Jerusalem. Verse 32, the tribune takes a group of soldiers to the scene and they try to defuse the situation. They arrest Paul, they, they get him out of there, and they place him in Roman custody where Paul will remain for the rest of the book of Acts. This is a pivotal moment in the book because from this point on, Paul will no longer live or minister as a free man. He must now endure the painful side of mission as a prisoner, as an inmate, Now, I recognize that this maybe is difficult to hear. It's not easy to, to look at a moment like this in Paul's life, a moment where he is misunderstood, a moment where he is violently persecuted. It's not easy to look at that and say, okay, this might be a possibility for you too. This could be what's coming for you. This could be what God has ordained for your life. 
I don't relish telling you that. I don't relish giving you that warning. But at the same time, I must. As one of your pastors, I have to be clear and honest with you. I have to tell you that there is a painful side to this mission that you are on. I have to tell you that there may come a time when you lose your job over something that you are unwilling to go along with. There may be times when a a friend or a family member cuts you out of their life completely because you're not telling them what they want to hear. There may come a time when people speak out against you publicly or they speak out against everything that you stand for because you've sworn allegiance to Christ and not to culture. And listen, friends, we could... We could downplay that if we wanted to, right? I mean, we could shrug that off and just say, well, I mean, that's just the cost of doing business. But to do that would be to fail to acknowledge that the pain of mission is real pain. It's real pain. There there is genuine pain involved when you follow Jesus. There is real adversity and tribulation that come with his cross being placed upon your back because the weight of that cross is heavy. The suffering that it brings will be bitter. The things that you must let go of in order to carry that cross will be costly. Yes, Acts 21 demonstrates that there are times when your heart will be broken by loss. And there are times when your faithfulness will be met with misunderstanding and hostility and hatred. But I promise you something. I promise you that there will never come a time when your Jesus is not enough for you. The day will never come when he fails to be all sufficient for you. Just listen to Romans 8.32. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Don't you love that? All things, and not all things begrudgingly, not all things reluctantly as if you have to twist his arm. No, all things graciously, all things exceedingly and abundantly more than you can ask or think. Christian, your Lord is not holding out on you. No, he is exuberant toward you, lavishly giving you every good and perfect gift from above. In Christ, it is all yours for the taking. And this is no less true When you're experiencing suffering. So I want to conclude this go and die sermon. By sharing with you three things. Three things to remember. When you are experiencing the painful side of mission. Let's look at these three things briefly. Number one. Jesus is present to you. In your pain. When you follow your crucified Messiah, yes, he leads you into suffering, but you can be sure that he will not leave you in that suffering. This is because the promise of mission is a promise of presence. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus tells us. And in those moments when the mission appears to be successful, When God's people seem to be triumphing, it's easy to believe that promise. We have no problem believing that Christ is with us on the mountaintop. 
But in the valley of the shadow of death, when you've hit rock bottom, let's be honest, sometimes we doubt, don't we? Sometimes our our trust begins to waver, even just a little bit. Because when the tears start flowing and the pain will not end, it's it's easy to begin to wonder, God, did you you leave me? Did Did you pull away from me? Have you called it quits? In Psalm 56, verse 8, we're reminded that the answer to that question is no. No, God hasn't left you. He hasn't withdrawn. David, as he is being persecuted by the Philistines, he cries out to God and he says, you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle and you have written them in your book. Friends, Jesus accounts for every tear that you shed for the sake of his mission. That's how present he is with you. He doesn't lose track of a single, solitary tear. Number two, second thing to remember is that Jesus sympathizes with your pain. Not only is he present to you, he is sympathetic toward you. The book of Hebrews reminds us that because we share in flesh and blood, Jesus partook of these things. He was made like us in every respect except for one, that he was without sin. And yet even though he was without sin, he tasted death on our behalf when he suffered on the cross of Calvary. And what that means for us is that Jesus has become our merciful high priest who is seated upon a throne of grace. By his enduring priesthood, he is able to sympathize with us because he has been tempted as we are, and yet he was found to be sinless. He was found to be spotless, perfectly righteous. Friends, no other system of religious belief, no other form of spirituality can say that it worships a deity who sympathizes Because there is no other God who would dare enter into our situation and experience in a human body what it's like to live in a sinful, broken world. And yet that's exactly what our God did. And he did it so that he could identify with what you're experiencing when your life crashes up against the shoals of the painful side of mission. Number three, and finally, Jesus is using your pain to prepare you for eternal glory. The goal of the Christian life, the goal of the mission that you have been assigned in Christ is to see him face to face. And when that happens, when you see him in the end, scripture tells us that you will be made like him. You will be glorified with him and in him because you will see him as he is. You will behold the scars on his glorified body. You will hear him say with a beaming smile upon his radiant face, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into my joy forever. You will behold the lamb who once was slain, receiving the reward of his suffering as he is worshipped by the hosts of heaven, as he is adored and praised by a kingdom of priests that he has purchased with his own costly blood. 
And when you see him at long last, you will recognize something in a way that enraptures you, in a way that, that thrills your redeemed soul to no end. You will recognize that nothing, nothing, nothing has been wasted. Every painful experience, every tear you have shed, every suffering you have endured, every instance of painful rejection, none of it will have been wasted because you will know that everything in your life has been leading you to this moment where you are finally beholding your Savior face to face. I said at the beginning that this was a go and die sermon rather than a come and live sermon. Maybe it would be better to say that this is a go and die so that you can come and live sermon. Because today the voice of Christ is calling out to you. It's echoing in this place, telling you to take up your cross, to deny yourself, and to come to Jerusalem with Jesus where you will be crucified with him. You're being called to do that so that you can live forever. For it says, as Jesus said, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Church, would you pray with me? Our God and Father in heaven, we know that your son is exalted. He's been seated in power at your right hand. And we know that even as he's seated there with you in glory, he still bears the scars of his death upon his resurrected body. Lord, this is a forever reminder that he took up his cross and he suffered a bitter, painful death for the joy that was set before him. And it's into this death that we're called to follow him. Our calling in this life is to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And so I pray, Lord, that this knowledge of our crucified Lord would give us strength today so that we could be faithful to your mission no matter what the cost. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In just a moment, we'll come to the Lord's table to receive communion. This meal is true food and true drink for the believer because we believe that by grace, by faith, we are feasting on the broken body and the shed blood of our crucified Lord. This means that this table is for all who believe that he is the savior of the world. For anyone who believes that, his presence is awaiting you here. But it also means that if you're not living by faith in Christ, there's nothing for you at this table. I hope that doesn't sound harsh. I, I don't mean it to, to, to sound that way, but I wanna be honest with you that if you don't have faith in Christ, what you'll find at this table it's just bread and juice from the grocery store. There's no grace for you here. So instead of, of coming forward to the table for communion, I wanna ask you to stay in your seat and I wanna ask you to take up your cross so that you can join us in following Jesus. You can do that by, by turning away from your sin. That's called repentance. You turn from your sin, you do a 180 degree turn and you turn to, toward Jesus instead. And you place your faith in him and he saves you because he died for that. And he lives to rescue sinners. For those of us who have been rescued by him, in a moment I'll ask you to come.
We'll start in the, the front row and we'll move to the back of the room. You can come down this aisle on this side of the room. There will be hand sanitizer for you here. And then you can walk across where the elements are awaiting you at the table. After that, we'll sing one final song together. Church, I love you. Your elders love you. But that's nothing compared to the love that Jesus has for you. His love is so great, so infinite, that he gave his life. He shed his blood so that he could have a relationship with you. So come, let's feast on him together. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.